Hey, thanks for clicking to listen to this episode. Before we get stuck in, I just wanted to let you know that the applications for the Leaders Plus Cross-Sector Fellowship have just opened this week. And I'm very pleased to say that every year, lots of our podcast listeners apply to join the fellowship. You'll get a senior leader mentor and a really awesome group of peers who are all passionate parents, but also very passionate about their career development. You'll get structured career development support and most importantly, time to think about what you want in your career and what you want in your family life and actually how to get there practically. If you want to get involved or you know of someone who is brilliant and deserves support, you can find out more on leadersplus.org.uk. Let's get stuck into the episode. I think it comes from my belief that change making is a team sport that when we think about trying to lead change, that it's impossible for any one of us to lead the change that our world needs. And going back to what I said earlier, which is that we tend to put the lone hero, the lone change maker up on a pedestal. So we think about Lequileza scaling the fence, or we think about Steve Jobs pulling the iPhone out of his pocket. And you know, there's a role for that type of heroic leadership, for sure. But really, change is going to come from each of us leading change from where we are. My vision of collective change comes from lots of us, the exceptional many rather than the exceptional few, all leading change. Welcome to the Big Careers Small Children podcast. I'm Felina Hefti, and I believe absolutely no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, amazing people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children. And this can lead to gender inequality at the top and the same stale, mostly male, middle-class people leading our organizations on our world. I want us all together to change this. And in fact, I hope that many of you listening to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible, where you make decisions that make our world better. Beyond the podcast, I'm also the CEO and founder of the award-winning social enterprise Leaders Plus. If you want support from amazing like-minded peers, if you want to join our free events, we've got one coming up about returning to work in January, or if you want to find out about our world-class career development program, our fellowship programs for parents, then sign up to our monthly newsletter on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. Today's podcast guest is Alex Budak. He's an expert in making change. And we discuss what the people who do actually drive real life positive change in this world have in common and how you can use his research to drive change for other working parents in your organizations. Enjoy the conversation. So very warm welcome, Alex, to the podcast. I am so happy to have you on the show. Let's start with you introducing who you are, what you do for work, and who's in your family. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Let's start with the last question first, because that's top of mind for me. So I have a wonderful wife, Rebecca, and I've got a darling son who's almost two years old now. And in terms of work, I wear a few different hats. I consider myself a social entrepreneur, I'm a speaker, I'm a faculty member at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business, and I'm also the author of the brand new book called Becoming a Changemaker. Which is very inspiring and also practical, may I add. And you're a reasonably young parent. I mean that not 
in reference to your age, sorry, in reference to the age of your child. And do you just reflecting on those last few years, is there anything that has changed in your view of how to combine a big demanding career with a young child that you didn't believe a few years ago? Parenting, as many of your listeners will agree, I think is life-changing. And so it's changed me in, in so many ways. But I think one of the most important ways that it's changed me is to have a much more long-term view of things. I think I've always sort of gravitated more towards the long view rather than the short term. But I think when you have a child, it forces you to think not just in days or weeks or months, but in years and decades. And so as I think about the work that I want to do, it's so easy to get wrapped up in the day-to-day and the week-to-week. And I think with kids, it's very easy for a week to just go by and have it be completely crazy. That something comes up, he's teething, and there goes the whole week. And that can feel very frustrating. But I think when you zoom out, you realize, well, you've got this longer-term view of things. And on top of that, especially for those of us that are more naturally mission or purpose-driven, you know, having a child is one of the best ways to anchor that. I've always wanted to use my platform to lift up the stories of others and to create a world filled with change makers. And I've always felt driven for that, but it comes with a completely different narrative when you think about not just the world I want to create, but the world that I want my little one to inherit. Mm. Very well said. And um, we're getting right into the depths of things. You mentioned your purpose. What, I guess, what do you want to, your child to say about your career? Let's say he's, you know, 35, maybe getting married reasonably proud of his dad past this stage where he's saying everything you're doing is bad and he's actually <laughs> proud of you. What do you think your son would be proud of? Well, I hope at a philosophical level, the thing he's most proud of is that I always prioritized him, always made time for him and always was there with him for all of his milestones and to spend the time with him, even the, the big moments, the small moments, but that he knows that he's the most important thing. So I hope that that's what he'll feel. But on the more career lens, hope that he'll see that I've dedicated my life to helping others find their own changemaker potential. One of my core values is humility. So I hope that he'll see that humility in the work that I do. And my work comes from that place of humility, which is that I can't possibly know exactly what the world needs. But I do know for sure that the world needs more people who are able and equipped and inspired to lead change. And so I hope as he looks back, he'll see that I use my platform for good, that I use it to lift up these change makers around the world. And that together, alongside so many other talented folks, we've empowered more people to lead change from where they are. Mm. I can see a real passion and almost obsession with enabling people to drive change wherever they are. Where did that start? I think I've always been interested in the concept of change, you know, always believing that tomorrow can be better than today, that we can play a role in making it so. I was recently looking back at my high school yearbook, and you know, it's funny, age 18, you got to choose a quote, a quotation that would go underneath your yearbook photo. And the quotation I chose was Gandhi's be the change you wish to see in the world. And of course, I was only 18. So what did I know about change? But I think I've always had this sort of intrinsic drive to try to make things better. But my true passion for change-making happened when I spent time living and working in India. I was in Ahmedabad, which is on the west side in the state of Gujarat. And while I was there, I was doing volunteer work with a local social enterprise. And, you know, this is far from a white savior story. I was not doing anything that important, but mostly I was there to support this amazing grassroots group. They were working with girls from the local community. 
They were using sport as a tool for teaching healthy habits and leadership. And it's there that a light bulb went off for me. That, you know, being an American living in big cities, I always thought that change came from one or two big organizations. So think the World Bank or the UN, and there's a role for that change for sure. But in India, I saw these grassroots change makers, these people that just stood up and said, hey, I've got an idea to improve my community. I'm going to take action on it. And I got so inspired by that idea and perhaps, as you say, obsessed with that idea that there's these change makers literally all around the world, people who want to start good, who want to serve their community. But unfortunately, there's too many barriers getting in the way. And that's where I decided I would dedicate my time and efforts to tearing down those barriers. Mm, very, very inspirational. And we've had a bit of an email exchange beforehand. And, and as you know, the thing that I'm really passionate about is I would love for organizations to be in ways so that everyone can get to the most senior leadership positions. I really believe our world needs to be led by much more diverse people. And obviously, you know, our specific niche is that we want more, we don't want women to be held back from senior leadership roles because they have children. And at the moment, organizations are totally set up. I'm doing a bit of this justice here. There are some organizations that are doing really good work, but many organizations are still set up for people who have a 1950s housewife at home. Obviously, great model if that's what you want to do, but actually most of us do not have a 1950s housewife as a third person or even a first person in, in your relationship. So my hope is that some of your listeners today will be inspired to change their organizations, despite it being really hard to be different. And I was just interested, you, you talk a lot of, in your book about the traits that are needed. And so I was wondering, like, let's be honest, can everybody be someone who drives change from the inside? Or do you have to be a special type of person? Mm, I love that question. I firmly believe that each and every one of us can lead change. But I think when we look at some of those narratives, a lot of your work is tearing down these narratives, mine as well. I think when we tend to look at leaders, we tend to put them up on a pedestal and say, oh, look at how courageous they are, or look how extroverted they are, or charismatic they are. And we do that, we say, well, I'm not naturally as extroverted. I'm not naturally charismatic. Does that mean I can't be a leader? Does that mean I can't be a change maker? No, absolutely not. We need to think about how each of us can lead from where we are in a way that's true to who we are, to get rid of some of those narratives of the single heroic leader, and instead think about how each of us every day can practice leadership. And so as you mentioned, there is some research that I've done on what the most effective change makers have in common. I call it the change maker index. It's the first ever longitudinal study looking at how individuals develop as change makers over time. If any of your listeners are curious to take it for themselves, you can actually go to changemakerbook.com slash index and give it a shot. But what we find in there is that, first of all, people can become change makers, no matter your sort of starting personality. But also there's some traits that effective change makers have in common. The one that perhaps most applicable here is this idea of being able to influence without formal authority. So I teach at a business school and the traditional way of thinking about leadership, especially at business schools is, well, you go try and amass as much power as you possibly can, as much formal authority through roles, through titles, through number of people that report to you. And then once you got that, well, then you can lead change. But I think just like your 1950s housewife, that's also an outdated model of leadership that now, especially when it comes to affecting change, it's much more about how can you inspire others to be part of the change with you, regardless of whether you're their boss, a manager, or just a peer. And when we think about that, it requires a different skill set. 
It requires being able to influence from where you are rather than tell people what to say. Now, to be clear, it is easier when you have formal authority to just tell someone what to do and have the threat of, well, if you don't do this, then you're fired. And I suppose you can use that occasionally. But when we think about trying to influence change in a sustainable way for the long term that brings other people alongside us, well, that's where influence matters much more. And I think the good news is that each of us can learn to be more influential no matter where we are in an organization. Hmm. Interesting. And I'm curious so I imagine some people listening to, well, I know there's some people listening to this who are, who really want to influence very practical stuff. So for example, someone in my mind right now has just told me that one thing that she wants to see happen in her organization is that maternity leave pay and share parental leave pay is the same level. So in the UK, we're very lucky enough in that we have a reasonable, generous maternity leave, some of the organizations, employers, they increase the salary, as in give a bit more money than the min- uh, statutory minimum, but they only do that for women and they don't do it for men, which is obviously means that it's mainly the women who take off time when the baby is born rather than the men. Anyways, the bottom line is, so let's think of this really practical thing this lady wants to influence. What would you teach someone like her on your courses? I know I'm so- asking you to summarize like six months module here but what's the key message to someone like her who really wants to influence change in an organization that is big hierarchical and slow yeah well maybe i'll share the story from my book which is the story of carolyn cat davis so she is a sales associate so sort of a flora employee at walmart in the outer banks of north carolina so on the east coast of north carolina she's a mother of two grown children and a grant has one grandchild And one of her colleagues came to her and she was dismayed. She was about to give birth to her first child. And she faced this dilemma that so many parents, I think especially new moms, especially face, which is she wanted to take time off to spend time with her kid. Um, But she also didn't have enough money to take the time off that she needed. And Davis looked into it. She found that there was unequal pay. So there was much more generous parental leave policies for Walmart executives, people that worked in the corporate offices, and very little for those that worked in the stores. Now, Carolyn first put into action one of the key changemaker traits, which is empathy. So she put herself in the shoes of her colleague. You know, She's a mom, a grandmother. She knows what it's like to be in that position where you shouldn't have to choose between your parent or your being a parent and having the money that your family needs. And she started using her influence skills. She started just in a small way, sort of asking around other colleagues at the store, you know, is this something you feel as well? Is this an issue for you? Would you like the have more parental leave policies and not without any desire to lead change at a corporate or national scale, just honestly kind of curious. That's a second key change maker trait is asking questions. You know, we say like being like a three-year-old asking why a lot to try to understand what might be going on. So she starts talking with enough people and realizes that it's not just her one colleague. A lot of people feel this. Then from there, she realizes, well, there really is this sense of inequity that the executives get pretty generous parental leave and the sales associates don't. So from there, she starts taking some action. She launches a petition where people could sign to say, hey, this doesn't seem fair. Let's go ahead and, and sign this. And things absolutely start taking off. It's to her absolute delight and her surprise that she receives tens of thousands of signatures, way more than she would have expected. Now, along the way, she also gets some emails from people that say, hey, you know, thank you so much for what you're doing. I really believe in it. Just for me, I just don't feel comfortable signing my name. 
publicly, but you know, thank you for what you're doing. And this reminds us that change making takes courage, that Davis was really putting herself out there, especially putting herself out there when she herself wouldn't benefit from the policy. But again, it goes back to another key changemaker trait, this idea of serving others, of looking out for others, giving a voice to others. So she eventually gets so many signatures that she and some colleagues go and deliver this box of signatures to the CEO's office of Walmart. By this point, they've got their attention and she gets invited to give a talk to the shareholders meeting. So the shareholders meeting, it's 25,000 people in the auditorium. That's an audience almost 20 times the size of her tiny little town, Bayboro, North Carolina, that she's from, population 1,200. But she steps up and she makes an emotional and honest and open and influential plea. She says, hey, does this seem fair to you, the way that things are structured right now? And if not, should we change it? And three months later, she led to change at the national level for all Walmart employees that all sales associates got the same pay that executives did. Now, I share this not saying that every single person will be Cat Davis, because of course, not all of us are going to take scale that scale of change. But it reminds us that, and I say this in the most wonderful way, Cat Davis is nothing special. Each of us can be Cat Davis. She didn't have a legacy or a history as a change maker. She saw an issue. She decided she could do something about it. She stepped up and she served others. Now, along the way, she practiced some key traits. So things like empathy and curiosity and service and certainly resilience <laughs> as she went along this. But it shows that each of us can lead change from where we are, especially on things that really mattered to us. Mm. Interesting also how she didn't actually, well, she definitely didn't have the formal power, but also she probably didn't start out thinking she was going to present to the board of Walmart. And actually no. the interesting is it like she just got started in some shape or form to be interested in the issue and to think about how she could serve. I quite like that. I find it quite freeing that actually this is a very powerful example when there's nobody with a project plan, just a broader vision or curiosity, like you say. Absolutely. And she even says that when she started the signature campaign, she thought maybe she'd get a few hundred signatures. Like she didn't know what would happen with it. But she says at the end, quote, to have a group behind you giving your support, it makes a huge difference. She says mm. there's power in numbers. And so that's exactly right. Sometimes we can get so paralyzed with fear that we think, okay, I've got to come up with the exact perfect plan. And then not until I have that plan will I be able to start leading change. But in Kat's case, which I think is a good lesson for many of us, especially corporate change makers, is Take some small steps, start small. You don't have to lead to that huge change all at once, but start making change, start kind of going in, in a deliberate fashion, have that vision, and then bring others along the change with you. Mm. I recently found out that according to Inside Radio, only one in five of the top charting podcasts are hosted by women. And that's despite 50% of listeners being female. I had no idea it was such an old boys club. So if you are finding that this podcast benefited you in some way, and if you're passionate about gender equality in all forms, then please take a moment to support a female hosted podcast by sharing this episode with a friend, for example, on Signal or WhatsApp, subscribing and giving it a five-star rating. Thank you so much for your support. Back to our conversation. The other thing that comes out of that example is that change could be, well, being a change maker could be associated with risk. I imagine not every organization will see someone like her positively initially. Have you experienced any backlash from driving change personally 
or have you seen any examples of negative backlash of or uh, risk? No, there certainly can be. And so you have to understand where your culture is coming from and sort of how to, how to navigate it. And that's a very real thing, a lot of backlash. We should also recognize that there's privilege that's tied up in risk-taking, that not all of us have the same safety net for when we can take those risks. But two concepts that I'll share from social science that I think can be helpful here. The first is a concept by Edwin Hollander, uh, which is called idiosyncrasy credits. So my word's not his. It's basically, how do you know when you should challenge the status quo? And also knowing that if you're constantly challenging the status quo on everything, you're probably going to be more annoying than actually effective. So Hollander says, look, in order to go your own way, you've got to earn what are called idiosyncrasy credits. You can earn these in one of two ways. The first is generally through competence, through doing good work. So imagine you show up on your first day of work and you try to be like Kat Davis and say, oh, I'm going to change the parental leave policy. Well, if no one knows who you are and knows that you do good work, it's probably unlikely to take hold. So competence, doing good work. And the second is going along with things when you don't care as much. If you try to challenge every single status quo, well, not only will you spread yourself pretty thin, you probably won't get much traction on any of them. So he says, look, go along with the flow on things you don't care that much about. So that way, when you do diverge from group norms, well, then they'll pay attention to you because then you are really standing up for something. So that's the first concept, idiosyncrasy credits. The second that I love is a concept called norm entrepreneurship. Now, norm entrepreneurship is often used in thinking about sort of international relations and global politics. So we might say, for instance, that the Scandinavian countries, that they're norm entrepreneurs, they affect outsized change on a global level around culture, despite not having a strong military. So they have outsized influence on sustainability and gender equality, despite not having that sort of formal military power that we often think about in international relations. So that concept has now been applied to the individual level as well. So norm entrepreneurship. Here's why I love it. Each and every one of us, if we want to be, we can be business entrepreneurs. So you and I could leave this podcast and we could go launch a coffee shop or launch a PR agency, right? We could go become an entrepreneur. Same thing with culture. Each of us can become a norm entrepreneur. We can start and scale culture from wherever we are in an organization. Now, norm entrepreneurship can be either formal or informal. On the formal side, it might be fighting for equal pay policies to be embedded into the organizational bylaws. Um, or it could be informal, right? It might be saying, hey, things are really hard right now. Instead of just jumping right into a Zoom meeting, why don't we just spend the first five minutes of each Zoom meeting kind of checking in, seeing how people are doing? Now, just like a business entrepreneur, there's no guarantee that you will be successful, right? I might set up a coffee shop and have no customers the first day. Same with culture. There's no guarantee that people will follow your norms. But I love that lens for thinking about change. So instead of waiting for someone else, instead of waiting for HR or the CEO to say, okay, this is our new norm, this is our new policy. No, we can each try to lead it from where we are. Again, no guarantee it's successful. We can at least have that lens, that sense of agency that says, yeah, I could try to lead change from where I am. Absolutely love that concept. Thank you for sharing it. I've been thinking a lot about anger recently because I went to this uh, really brilliant event with Julia Gillard, the former president or prime minister of, of Australia, where she talks about her misogyny speech. And it's one of the few examples where I've seen a female express anger in a way that was positively received. And I know that some people listening here will be f feeling a sense of anger about how the world of work is now and all the change that is needed, or even just political anger. What is your reflection about turning grumpiness 
anger, dissatisfaction into becoming a change maker? Mm, good question. I love the words of singer-songwriter Joan Baez. She says, action is the antidote to despair. And so when I close my final semester, my final lecture of the class uh, at UC Berkeley, I lead with this. I teach mostly Gen Z students, some millennials, but mostly Gen Z. And I tell them that if you look at the state of the world today and you're frustrated, you have every reason to be angry. You have every reason to be mad at the world that you're inheriting. When you think the climate catastrophe they're inheriting to racial injustice, systemic injustice, there are huge things that they're inheriting, which was not their fault, that they are now stepping into. They have every reason to feel upset. And so my challenge for them is not to pretend they're not upset. It's to channel that. It's to be upset and feel hopeful, to feel like there's something I can do about it. Author Rebecca Solnit says, hope isn't something you just clutch in an emergency. It's an ax you use to tear down walls. So we need to feel that sense of hope, that feeling of, yes, I'm upset and I can do something about it. And to not let anyone take away your feeling of hope, this idea that tomorrow can be better than today and crucially that you can make it so. So let's stop telling us that we can't feel angry because we have every right to feel upset about the injustices we're facing. But don't let that anger so overwhelm you that you feel like you can't do something about it because we need you to do something about it. I'm thinking a lot about influencing senior leaders. Some of the HR directors I talk to, they really want to influence the board, but it's not easy. Have you got any reflections on how to influence the most senior leaders who maybe are not really affected by the issues you're talking about? Mm, yeah. So... In my class and in my book, I develop what I call five influence superpowers. Now, when we look at the way business schools often teach influence, to me at least, it can feel kind of sleazy or transactional. Many of your listeners might know the idea of the reciprocity effect. That's where it's like, I go out of my way to do something nice for you, but not really to do something nice, mostly so that you feel pressure to do something nice for me. That's how we often think about influence, but I think that doesn't work in today's work context and especially in this world where we see people over and over again. You can take advantage of someone once, but not for the long term. So instead, I developed what I call my five influence superpowers, which are ways of influencing others sustainably for the long term that invites others to be part of the change with you. I'll briefly go through each of the five and encourage your listeners to think about, well, which of these are the ones that you feel most comfortable using and which is the one that perhaps you've never used, which is a good opportunity for you to perhaps try out your next time you need to influence. So the first influence superpower is empathy. That's being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Now, crucially, empathy is not the same as sympathy, but it's being able to see things from where they're coming from. Uh, Patty Sanchez wrote in Harvard Business Review a fascinating finding, which is that 50% of C-suite executives, when they're leading change, they don't take into account how that change will be perceived by people on the front lines. So that reminds us that it's not enough to just be right, right? The executive could have the right strategy for the firm, but if they don't get that buy-in from people, explain why the change matters, understand how they might be perceiving it, it may not work. So that's understanding, you know, where are they coming from? Are they worried? Are they nervous? Are they overworked? Are they stressed out because of family issues? You know, where are they coming from before you try to influence and put yourself in their shoes? Second one is relationships. Now, this is the epitome of a long-term play because you can't develop a relationship, boom, overnight. But investing in getting to know people, and this is where perhaps getting to know someone on the board ahead of time can be really helpful. So they know that you're not just worker, you're this person, you're a human. I think here about a buddy of mine who recently reached out to me, asking me to help him raise funds. He was running a race to raise money for a rare disease that had affected a loved one. 
he asked me to support him. And in a second, I said, yes, of course. But if you ask me, you know, why did I support him? It was honestly much more about him and our relationship than it was about that specific cause. Not that it wasn't important. It just wasn't a crucial cause to my own life, to my loved ones. And so in that case, I supported him because I believed in him and wanted to support him. And sometimes people will support you, be part of your change simply because they like you, they believe in you, even if they don't know specifically about that change. The third is vision. So I talk about vision as painting a picture of the future that's so compelling that people can't help but want to be part of it with you. And crucially, when it comes to influence, it's helping people connect how their small contribution connects to the larger whole. Now, there's a story which may be apocryphal, but I think it's a good illumination of this concept. So the story goes that a journalist was walking through the halls of NASA, which of course is the American space program, and she sees a janitor and asks the janitor, well, what do you do for a living? And to be clear, janitors do really important and completely undervalued work, which is what do you do for a living? And he says, I help launch rockets into space. That's a guy that's so bought into the vision of NASA that he sees how his work, however removed traditionally, is connected to that larger mission, that larger vision. So painting that picture so that others can understand how their work, you know, if you need to get a board member on board, how will their contribution help make this change happen? Fourthly, passion. Now, here's where I think authenticity matters because you can't really fake passion. But if you're truly passionate about something, whether that's parental equality, gender equality, racial equality, whatever it is at work, let that passion come through. People want to feel part of something bigger than themselves. They want to feel a sense of purpose. And oftentimes leading change within an organization is a chance for someone to feel that sense of purpose, that sense of passion, and to be inspired to join you in it. And the fifth one, and perhaps apropos to some board members, is safety, making it safe for others to be part of the change with you. Social science research shows us that some of us are more biologically drawn to be risk takers, others less so, looking at, for instance, the big five personality test. But no matter where we are biologically, I think we can learn to make it safe for others to be part of change with us. I work at UC Berkeley, a big bureaucracy, with a lot of people who want to maintain the status quo. And so here's what I've learned. If someone is maybe inspired by the change, uh, use some passion, they say, okay, I like that, but they're scared to join. What I'll do is say, look, I know that this is a risk for you. Use some empathy. Say, here's my promise to you. I promise that if this works, you will get the praise. And if it doesn't work, I will take the blame. That's a small way I can make it safe for others to be part of change efforts with me. So to recap the five influence superpowers, we've got empathy, relationships, vision, passion, and safety. And encourage you and your listeners to think about, well, which of these five do I most want to put into practice? And which is the one that maybe feels like the biggest stretch for me? And maybe that's the one to work on in your next influencing approach. Mm. It's fascinating. Before I saw your book, I didn't come across those five things. But then when I look through my own story of setting up a social enterprise, actually, that's very often it's that people connect to the passion, the vision, the and the the empathy that you create. So that's interesting. And and I love the safety element when we talk. And I think that's so relevant just on a smaller level about flexible working. Very often when we make a flexible working request, the first thing that goes through the mind of the line manager will be, oh, my goodness, is this going to mess up everything in my department? Is my department going to perform badly as a result of it? Will, will I look bad in front of my boss? And you can very easily make them feel safe about it by saying, well, 
look, I've already thought through all these challenges and here are my solutions. And oh, by the way, we're going to call it the pilot. So we're going to test it for three months and then you can tell us if it works and this is how we'll evaluate it and all that. So you, by making it safe, you've already won such a big part of the battle. So I love that you bring that as part of the influencing. Um, I'm interested also about, so you clearly are uplifting other stories. I'm even just on your through your social media, you're promoting other change makers, you're giving them a platform and so on. Where does that come from? Where does that passion come from? I think it comes from my belief that change making is a team sport, that when we think about trying to lead change, that it's impossible for any one of us to lead the change that our world needs. And going back to what I said earlier, which is that we tend to put the lone hero, the lone change maker up on a pedestal. So we think about Lequileza scaling the fence, or we think about Steve Jobs pulling the iPhone out of his pocket. And you know, there's a role for that type of heroic leadership, for sure. But really, change is going to come from each of us leading change from where we are. My vision of collective change comes from lots of us, the exceptional many rather than the exceptional few, all leading change. And so if my role can be to lift up those stories of others, I hope to one, give them a greater sense of agency, but also to remind people that maybe are just following me on LinkedIn when they see someone else who seems like them or is passionate about a similar cause as them say, well, if they can do it, I can do it. Or when you think about you know, the climate catastrophe, I'm so inspired by the way that there's been network-based leadership, that it's not one person trying to solve climate all by themselves, but a network of people saying, oh, well, that model works well in Rwanda. Let me see if I can apply that to my own country in Spain and saying, oh, well, let me see if I can think about climate tech here. And like, it takes all of us together. And so my hope is that by seeing those stories, by seeing the examples, by seeing the shining lights, and by also seeing that people from all walks of life lead change, that each and every one of us can be change makers. And that might be the light bulb moment from people that go, ah, okay, I can be a change maker too. Mm, absolutely. And you mentioned at the very beginning about introverts being change makers. Sounds mm. like you think introverts can be change makers, um, but do they have to go about things in a different way? Yes. I mean, you need to lead from from where you are. I love the work done by Susan Cain in her book, Quiet, which is about the power of introverts. And when we think about systems, most of the systems, especially at work, are really geared towards more extroverted people. It's sort of set up for the extrovert. But I think it doesn't need to be the case. I think a lot of it begins with self-awareness to understand where we ourselves are coming from, but then to lead change in a way that's true to who you are. So you know, you don't have to be like Kat Davis giving a huge talk in front of 25,000 people. You could use Slack, you could use IM, you could use email, you could start with small individual conversations. And let's also recognize that being a change maker doesn't require being the one at the front of a movement. There's a video I love showing in my class. It's called Leadership Lessons from the Crazy Dancing Guy. It's Derek Sivers. He shows this video of a guy who starts dancing at a festival all by himself for about 15 seconds. And then after a very long 15 seconds, another guy comes over and starts dancing with him. He then sort of calls to his friends, his friends come in. And then by the end of the three minute video, we've got the entire crowd, the entire group at the festival is dancing together. And what Sivir says is that we probably will give a lot of the credit to that first dancing guy, the guy that took his shirt off, started dancing at the front of the crowd. But actually the one that made it all happen was the first follower, the one that saw someone doing something really interesting made it safe for others to follow and called for his friends to come join. And I think that's an example of where an introvert may be able to play that role that, you know, maybe you're not the ones who be at the front of the movement, 
But maybe you can find someone doing something really interesting, a change you really believe in, and galvanize resources in a way that's true to who you are to make it a movement, not just one single person. Mm, wow, that's such an interesting flip on it. I am asking every one of our podcast guests about three practical things that someone can do this week. So, and obviously our listeners are super busy, so it'd be really helpful if they could be done in five minutes, please. So three practicals for someone who wants to be a change maker, change the organization from the inside, what they could do this week. Love it. So first, try out one of the influence superpowers that I mentioned. And I encourage you to try the one that came least naturally to you. So vision is the one that you felt was, oh, that's not me. I challenge you to go use vision. Regardless, each of us will need to influence something, whether small or big, or just trying to convince our kids to eat their dinner. You need to use influence superpowers. So try to use one of those influence superpowers. The second is I believe that culture is an amazing catalyst for change. So I encourage you to think about how you could practice norm entrepreneurship. Again, it doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to be creating equal parental leave policies at the entire corporate level like Kat Davis. Maybe just a small thing you want to do, making it safe for others to work remotely or change the way you start Zoom meetings. So my challenge to you is practice norm entrepreneurship. Identify a small bit of culture you would like to lead and go do it. And the third is recognizing that change can feel scary and overwhelming. I created a tool, which is called the Changemaker Canvas. You can check it out at changemakerbook.com slash canvas. I encourage you to take a look and use that, fill that out as you think about a change you'd like to lead. And that gives you all the practical, actionable steps you need to turn an idea for change into action. And so it might be helpful if you remind people again, because I think quite a few of them might be interested in your book on your website. If you just remind them again exactly what the title of the book is, the website, anywhere where they can connect with you on social media, that will be really helpful. Gladly. So check out changemakerbook.com. The book is called Becoming a Changemaker, an Actionable, Inclusive Guide to Leading Positive Change at Any Level. You can take the Changemaker Index I mentioned at changemakerbook.com slash index and would love to connect with your listeners. Follow on LinkedIn by my name or on Instagram at Alex Budak. One of the greatest joys of writing a book is connecting with other change makers, both those that have already led change or those that are emerging and aspire to be change makers. So please reach out to me, connect with me, and let me know how I can support you on your own change maker journey. Amazing. And I will definitely make sure that all our, well, we'll include some of that in the newsletter and also that all our fellows have access to that change maker canvas. Terrific. Why do you think can it be so difficult to change the culture of an organization to enable people to be change makers? Well, the status quo bias is a real thing. The behavioral economists Samuelson and Zeckhauser actually proved that. They found that people tend to overvalue what we already have and that we're generally scared of the new thing. So anytime we try to lead change, we'll be going up against that status quo bias. And that makes any type of change, and I think especially systemic change, especially difficult to go about changing. That makes sense. And why do you think employers should care about enabling change makers? I think the last couple of years have shown us that many of us don't really have an option but to empower change makers. When you think about the scale of change facing our world today, from COVID, which has quite literally upended everything about how we work and live and work-life integration, to the upcoming climate catastrophe, to the long overdue awakening, to systemic racism embedded into systems, to the great resignation, there is so much change happening all around us. 
I love to share a graphic in my classes, which shows a group of people sitting in a conference room saying, oh, digital transformation. Yeah, we could wait a couple of years for that. And then right outside of the conference room is this big wrecking ball labeled COVID-19. And how apropos is that? So many of our executive teams, we kept thinking, oh, we've got more time before we need to come up with a digital strategy. But no, there's no better time than right now to be adapting to change because there's a very little chance that the world starts changing less and slows down. I think the world is changing as slowly as it ever will right now. It will only get faster. And so the opportunity for us is to get really comfortable with our change muscles. In the book, I tell the story of Two Birds Brewery, which is the first ever woman-owned brewery in Australia. And they have this long legacy of questioning the status quo and almost everything that they do from their operations to what they sell. And so when COVID hit, obviously that was devastating for most restaurants and breweries. But because they had such a strong history of questioning the status quo, a culture of change making, they were able to adapt on a dime. Within one weekend, they had set up a drive through bottle shop, they had set up delivery services, and they were able to nimbly adjust to all the change around us. Now, I don't think that would have been possible if they hadn't been practicing change and change making for the years leading up to it. And so if you believe me that the world is changing quickly and will only keep changing faster, well, then you've got a strategic imperative to make sure that you're equipped to deal with change and that you've built a culture filled with change makers, people who can not just survive change, but can navigate shape and lead positive change for themselves, their teams, and for customers. Mm. Love it. And so if you are, let's say, an HR director listening and you'd love to take what Alex is saying here and implement it, what would be a first step to try to start to change the culture to allow more change making to happen? Well, one fun step would be to have your team take what I call the Changemaker Index. It's a longitudinal study looking at how changemakers develop over time. You can take it at changemakerbook.com slash index and find out what your own unique changemaker strength is. I think there's power and strength-based leadership so you can help people understand what's their greatest strength as a changemaker. But then from there, I think you want to think about really trying to understand where are individuals coming from? What are their greatest avenues for change? As executives, we can tend to be sort of walled off, isolated from the sort of experiences of people on the front lines. And so I think you've got to go and practice some empathy. Patty Sanchez writes in Harvard Business Review, finding that 50% of C-suite executives, when they lead change, they don't actually take into account how that change will be perceived by people on the front lines. And so make sure you understand where people are coming from. What are their fears? What are their hopes? What are their dreams? One approach I often advise executive teams to take is to build an employee advisory board. So as you build this board, make sure that they represent the diversity of the entire organization in terms of gender and race, but also age and experience and location, among other things. And before you try to communicate company-wide, Run those communicate by that advisory board. Make sure that it speaks to them, that they don't have questions. Find ways to engage them. Get their input on the front lines. What are they seeing? What do they see as the greatest opportunities? And to be much more bottom up rather than just top down. Hmm, I like that idea. It makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned also, what did you call it? Norm entrepreneurship, I think, isn't it? So, So the idea that you get a group of people within an existing system who shake things up, who try to do things differently, and then it spreads. Did I understand that right? 
Yeah, you, you got it right. So the concept is called norm entrepreneurship. And just like each and any of us can be a business entrepreneur, we could launch a coffee shop or a PR agency. Um, same thing, each of us could launch and scale culture. Norm entrepreneurship teaches us that we can lead culture from where we are. And that norm could be formal or informal. On the formal side, it could be a policy, let's say for equal pay. But on the informal side, it could be simply saying, hey, things are hard right now. Like we're doing a lot of Zoom meetings. People are stressed out. Instead of just jumping right into the content of the meeting, why don't we spend five minutes just checking in, seeing how people are doing? Now, just like a business entrepreneur, there's no guarantee that your culture will be successful. People might say, no, that doesn't work. But that's fine. You can launch and scale culture from wherever you are. And it's therefore egalitarian that each of us can be catalysts of culture. Excellent. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed today's conversation, you might also like episode 36, where I talk to a group of fellows about expectations of mothers and how to deal with those. You might also enjoy our free event in January about returning to work if you are on maternity leave or have returned um, a very short time ago. If this podcast has been helpful to you and you'd like a practical community to support you, then consider joining the fellowship program. You can find details about this and access any of our free events on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. On the fellowship, you get access to amazing role models who have experience of bringing up kids whilst progressing their careers, mentors, support with practical challenges, for example, workload management or saying no, You'll get support to develop your vision and make a plan for career and family life in small group sessions. And you will access research on what causes career progression and how to implement this practically in the context of looking after young children. In our last cohort, more than half have got promoted or got additional senior responsibility by the end of the programme. And they're all involved in some shape or form in driving wider change for working parents, which really excites me. Oh, and as I mentioned in the middle, if you think the world of podcasting should be a bit more gender equal and less of an old boys club and you want to support me and this podcast, then I would be super appreciative of you taking a moment to share it, let's say, for example, via WhatsApp or Signal. And also it really helps if you write a five star review. It just the algorithm makes it more popular and it gets seen more and so on so yeah it would be super helpful thank you so much and see you next week